Welcome back to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale, a podcast where we are taking a deep dive into a triple murder that took place in 1960 in the Star of Rock State Park, where three women were brutally bludgeoned to death. My client, Chester Weger, was convicted of the horrible crime and served over 60 years and was recently released on parole. He is currently 83 years old. We've been making the case on this podcast that Chester Weger is innocent and had absolutely nothing to do with this horrendous crime. We've got a bonus episode today. We've called it the Steve Stout Documents. Let me explain. As many of the listeners probably know, Steve Stout has been kind of the self-proclaimed expert on this story over the years, wrote a book on the Star of Rock murders, is a proclaimed expert on the case, and has been a champion that Chester Weger is guilty. That's all fine. Everybody's entitled to an opinion. But here's what is ironic and incredible. I had somebody reach out to me from the public who told me, gave me a tip, that Steve Stout had recently donated anonymously a bunch of documents relating to the Star of Rock murders to the LaSalle Historical Society. So I reached out to the LaSalle Historical Society, and they said, yeah, we've got some documents that were donated anonymously. And I went out there and looked at them, and it was amazing some of the things I found in those documents, which we're going to talk about. But what I think is incredible is these documents have been sitting apparently in the garage of Steve Stout for the last four decades When I looked at them, I had to pull the pages apart. They were all crusty. Nobody had looked at these things recently. There was some amazing, helpful things in there. And why were they sitting in Steve Stout's garage all these years? And nobody knew about them. Apparently, these were the documents of Harlan Warren, Harlan Warren's personal files. They're not Harlan Warren's property. Yeah, it's his file that belongs to the LaSalle County State's Attorney's Office. So why Harlan Warren gave the documents to Steve Stout is beyond me. That's improper. Why Steve Stout kept them is improper. They should have been returned to the LaSalle County State's Attorney's Office. And after all these years, and after all the things we've been doing, trying to prove Chester's innocence and get to the truth, Steve Stout does not tell me he's got the documents, doesn't tell the LaSalle County State's Attorney he's got the documents. He tries to secretly bury them at the LaSalle Historical Society, So no one will even know about them. So I think it's just, and you'll see when we go through this stuff today, there was some bombshell stuff we found. And I just think it's so ironic that, and it's so fitting, really. It's so fitting if you're writing a screenplay that these final pieces of the puzzle would come from the files of Steve Stout. Let me just leave it at that. Let's begin. Whitney Braun, do you have your seatbelt securely, securely fastened today? I am ready for a bumpy ride, and I'm, I'm, I'm so excited for it. I can't wait for every detail. Well, let's start with this. You've got an update uh, in terms of your life. Did you just have a little baby boy? Tell us about that. I did. I had a baby boy. So while you were investigating and finding out all this fascinating stuff and and giving me the information, I was uh, trying to keep a tiny human alive. I I gave birth six weeks ago to little JJ. 
So um, I this is this is my first adult gig. This is my first uh, moment in six weeks in a room with adults talking about important stuff and and not changing diapers and worrying about uh, you know whether the bottle warmer is working. So this is this is this is quite the exciting return to adult life. Well, I am so happy for you. Thank mom you. and mom and baby boy are doing fine. We are fantastic. He's he's amazing. He's amazing. Well, we'll have to get him on this podcast at some point. <laughs> Maybe just to make some sounds and things. But yeah. So let's get into it. There is so much to talk about. Oh my gosh. So these these documents, Whitney, these were this this does look to be like Harlan Warren's file, parts of it original documents like in file folders and ringed binders. Let me just start off in no particular order. Let me start out with one. There was a report. It was a report from November 29th, 1960. It is a two-page memorandum. Again, we're going to post all this on the podcast website, andyhillpodcast.com. I thought this was pretty amazing. You know, we've talked on the podcast numerous times about the log not being the murder weapon that caused all these injuries to these women. Well, this is interesting. This two-page type memorandum says on November 29th, 1960, which bear in mind, that's almost two weeks after Chester Hess confessed, okay? Bill Dummett and Hess, uh, Wayne Hess, with a person, some forestry expert, B.F. Kuchka from the United States Department of Agriculture Forest Services Division. They go out to St. Louis Canyon. And let me just read you this part. They drove to St. Louis Canyon and took the trail to the cave, the canyon floor, in the approximate area where the victims were found, looking for possible sources of the club, which had been suspected of coming from a tree on the bluff or the areas adjacent to the cave. So what they're trying to do is match up that, let's call it the log, with trees around St. Louis Canyon, okay? First of all, it's kind of odd. Why are they even doing that? Okay, that's kind of weird. But in any event, they do it, and it reports they found no trees which could have produced such a branch or club. Wow. So remember, you know, Chester's alleged confession is, oh, there's this log laying right here. That presumably, you know, came from a tree right there. And he picks it up, right? They report they could not match that log to any trees in the whole area. That is absolutely stunning to me. And what I want to point out is, which I think is really an interesting little detail. If you remember the man from Hennepin, what he told us was that Smokey Rona brought a log, like from his, you know, that he found, I think in his yard or somewhere near him, and he brought it with him. Yeah. He brought it with him. Uh, and I've talked to the man from Hennepin about this. I'm like, you know, I don't think this, this log, he's like, no, this is what he told me. Smokey said he brought this log with him. Like it was frozen, he kicked it. My point is, this is corroboration for the fact that that log came from somewhere else. So I think that's an interesting piece of corroboration. But what it does show is, at the very least, that Chester's alleged confession was bogus, was false. The log wasn't just laying there on the ground. And I think this is so funny. This part of the memo, I almost laughed out loud when I read this. Once they couldn't match it up, 
Harlan Warren notes says, this is, I'm reading it. Is it possible that this wooden club could have come from a white oak tree, which might have been cut down or been blown down by the elements, and then this piece broken off and washed down the stream? <laughs> I mean, like, oh my God, talk about how desperate they are to match this log up. So what do you think of this document? So, okay, so so Harlan Warren's theory is that a, a gale force wind just came through destroyed a tree and then during the dead of winter when the when the stream is frozen moved this giant piece of 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 timber <laughs> okay. oh my god well it just it feels like a, the word you used is appropriate desperate it's a it's a desperate attempt to to try and find some physical evidence to say oh no no look chester's chester's confession is 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 legit uh, i mean that's that's just what it screams to me yeah i mean and the fact that they couldn't do it yeah Two weeks after the confession, it's not like the case comes to a halt. It's not like Chester doesn't get prosecuted. Yeah. They know. They already knew that, you know, from all these things we reported already, that the log wasn't the murder weapon. And now they can't even match it up to St. Louis Canyon. And they tried and tried. That was absolutely incredible to me. But that's just, we're just getting warmed up, Whitney. That is just the start. Let me talk about another piece of evidence. I actually just interviewed a gentleman yesterday. I don't want to go public with his name yet, but he is from uh, you know, the Illinois Valley area. He is in his mid-80s. He has unfortunately been in and out of prison a lot of his life. And I got uh, somebody you know, in one of the many contacts they made told me about this guy that he might know something. He didn't have too much to say about the Starve Rock murders, but this is what he told me that was really relevant and powerful. He told me that there was a big robbery in 1970. I think it was of platinum, got stolen from some plant. And Bill Dummett and Wayne Hess got some guy to say that this guy that I talked to had approached him about committing this robbery, and then the, the person like declined to be involved in it, and then my guy then came back to the bar, you know, a week later and said, oh, you really should have, you missed out. We made a huge score and made a lot of money. And that they totally got this guy to, to, to falsely accuse this person of being involved in the robbery. The guy didn't even know the other person, had no idea who he was, never met him. And then the whole case winds up falling apart. I mean, it goes to the grand jury. This guy was going to face 60 years in prison. He tells the story to me, and he's still so upset about it. And I took a court-reported statement under oath. We're going to submit it to the state's attorney's office. My point is, this just shows you the kind of people we're dealing with here in Dummett and Hess, right? I mean, we, we know that it's not just Chester Weger. We've seen this with several other people fabricating witness statements to pin something on somebody where they could go to prison for 60 years. I, I, I mean, oh my God, Whitney, it's just, again, it's, it's unbelievable. I just don't understand how they could be so cavalier about people's lives. And we're not talking about inconveniencing somebody for 15 minutes, which makes me feel bad enough if I, you know, keep you waiting at the coffee shop for me. But I'm, I'm talking about their being cavalier in ways that cost people decades of their life in prison and their reputations. How? How do you do that? And 
I, I, I just, I can't stomach it. It's, it's really hard for me to just wrap my mind around. It takes a very evil person, Whitney, to do something like this in multiple cases. It takes a very defective, evil person to do that. It's not an accident. It's happened too many times. It is somebody that's got serious problems. Well, there's a complete lack of empathy. How, how, could, you, how could you stomach taking someone's life away from them and sending them to prison for a crime they didn't commit. I, I don't know. I just, it's so upsetting. It's, it's unbelievable. And I mean, we're passing over this one now. We're going to move on to some things that are, that are even more shocking. But this one alone, if you, just let it, if you just let it resonate and just let it kind of sit there and you think about it, it really provides the context of, well, Chester confessed. Now you know. Yeah. Now you can see why it happened. And now you know, is Dummett somebody who'd make up this bit about the airplane flying overhead? Hell yes. Absolutely. Oh, of course. Of course. Oh, my goodness. But let's get to the meat of the new stuff. Okay. Let me lay a little context. We've talked about the telephone operator, Lois Zelensak, who overhears two brothers. The call's placed from Aurora, a tavern in Aurora owned by... Glenn Palmatier to his brother, William Palmatier's house. And the caller says, hey, the kid, you know, the big write-up on the murders in tonight's paper, you know, the kid still got the bloody overalls in the trunk of the car. He's getting nervous about what to do with them. He's worried he's going to get caught. The guy in Peru says, tell him to get rid of him, burn him. Remember that whole thing? Oh, oh yes, I do. <laughs> okay. So all we knew before recently was there were newspaper articles that just said, Glenn Palmatier passed the polygraph. And we're like, oh, that's it? It just, just went away? Well, there's more. Uh, I had never seen these documents before. Apparently, I don't know, you know, they've been sitting in a garage for 40 years. There is an interview on August 30th with Glenn Palmatier with a bunch of police officers where he is specifically confronted about this phone call. He clearly knows this topic's going to come up. He's got a lawyer present. And he's asked, you know, did you make this call? Of course, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I had nothing to do with it. But here's where it gets interesting. So I'm not surprised he denied it. Of course, he denied it. The Illinois State Police, who are really kind of running the show at this point, say, well, we, they've got this bar under surveillance. They talk about phone calls they've traced. They then say to uh, Glenn Palmatier, you know, we've been coming in here every day. Let's pause there. So they've got this place under surveillance. They're coming in there secretly to check it out. And they say, we see you talking to a guy every day named Lupe, the chief Cardenas. And he's got this criminal record. And, you know, uh, are you aware of that? And Glenn Palmatier says, I'm aware of nothing. And denies knowing anything about this guy, this Lupe Cardenas denies anything to do with the phone call. And I think it's interesting that the Illinois State Police are very concerned and interested in who is this Lupe Cardenas guy, who Glenn Palmatier is saying he doesn't know anything about the guy, who the state police see him talking to him every day. Well, I did a little research on Lupe the Chief Cardenas, and I came across a bunch of newspaper articles. I'll read you one. February 14th, 1968, it says, Albert Lupe Cardenas, 40, 
who the government said has crime syndicate connections. This guy also had got a 15-year prison sentence for being involved in some big robbery with a bunch of other, uh, looks like mob-connected guys. Lupe Cardenas appears to be a mob-connected guy. So now what do we know? We know that Glenn Palmatier is seen talking every day to a guy, Lupe Cardenas, who is apparently mob-connected. So now we've made a connection between the Palmatier brothers and the mob. That's the first point. Let me let me start talking and let you say whatever you want to all that. Okay. It's just crazy to me, Andy, because even though I intellectually know that everything that you're telling me is true, you, you've provided the evidence, we fact-checked it, it <laughs> sounds like you are writing an over-the-top Hollywood screenplay about the mob in the 60s in Illinois. I mean, these these names like Lupe, Lupe Cardenas, right? Going to the bar and the police going, hey, you know, we, we know you're associated with this guy. And, and Paul Mateer going, no, I don't know. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who you're talking about. I can just see an actor deadpanning this. But it's all true. And it's just, it's so ridiculous and tragic at the same time. Does that make sense? Is that a good way to describe it? Ridiculous and tragic? Yeah. I'm glad you put it in, in screenplay context because over the top, yes, it's going to get more over the top before <laughs> we finish this episode. You're just, we're just getting wound up here. Oh, man. Um, yeah. You know, the truth is stranger than fiction. That is so true. Again, you can read this whole interview. I urge you to do it. We're going to post it on the website, andyhillpodcast.com. Statement of Glenn Palmatier, August 30th, 1960 at 125 p.m. But let's pause there. It made me think of something else once I said that date. That telephone operator memo is in April. It is a huge break in the case. April, May, June, July, all of August. Nobody brings this guy in for an interview until August 30th? Are you kidding me? I mean, when she told this story, they should have all gotten in their cars and driven right to Glenn Palmatier's house and said, we need to talk to you, okay? I'm not saying at that point you're going to assume he's guilty, but you know what? He's a huge person of interest, and you're going to wait until August 30th to even have a conversation with this guy? And then he's got his lawyer present, too. He's prepared for it. Oh, my gosh. So let's, let's continue with our, our over-the-top screenplay as this plays out because it gets even better, Whitney. I mean... As we go through this right now, picture like you and I writing a screenplay on the Star of Rock Murders. Like this whole episode is fiction, right? Yeah. You and I are just making all this stuff up, okay? So let's, let's continue. What we now know, we now know Glenn Palmatier, the Byron and Aurora, has ties to the Chicago Mafia, meaning there's a guy coming to the bar every day that he's talking to, Lupe the Chief Cardenas, okay? Well... There's also a transcript from August 30th, 1960, where the police officers are talking about basically what transpired that day. And they put on the record some conversation that took place before the court reporter got there and before Glenn Palmatier's lawyer got there. Let me just read you verbatim from page 18 of what Trooper Donald Murphy says in his transcript. He says, I forgot something maybe I should have put in. Glenn Palmatier said when I was alone with him, he said he knew, pause for drama, Mr. Murphy, 
because he used to run an appliance store and sold Stuart Warner refrigerators, and Murphy was connected with Borg Warner or Stuart Warner. He didn't know him well, but he knew who the man was. When he read of the murders, he realized he knew one of the woman's husbands. Oh, my God. Now, are you kidding me? Glenn Palmatier admits now that he knew Robert Murphy, one of the husbands, Francis Murphy's husband. Are you kidding me? So now, Glenn Palmatier is not only linked to the Chicago Mafia, he is linked to Robert Murphy. You and I could not make this up. It is just stunning. This is the guy you need to have your phasers set on if you are investigating, and he just skated through. He just skated through, and you didn't even know these documents existed, Andy, until they get plucked from a garage after four decades and deposited in the innocuous Historical Society repository. It's like Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think we talked about this, like that last scene, you know. Documents are just sitting there under uh, some rakes and shovels and uh, old crap in a garage, yeah. um, apparently, for nobody to see. And, and, when, and when I looked at these, by the way, I was peeling the pages apart consistently, meaning nobody had read these recently. Yeah, They were so all stuck together. It was so delicate. These were just all old and dusty. They had the old like onion paper with yes. the, the carbon yes. copy, you know, the, the smell where they stick together. Yeah. The- yeah. Can we continue this, uh, this journey we're on, this, this Hollywood screenplay? All right. So now, August 30th, what we know is, Glenn, it, it, you know, if, you're, if your antenna was up when you talked to Lois Zelensky, now it's got to be just, going crazy because you've now linked Glenn Palmatier to the Chicago Mafia and a Robert Murphy, okay? And by the way, there is an index of statements, and there was a statement taken from William Palmatier. I don't have it. It's not in the documents that I saw. It's missing. Where is that? Because Glenn Palmatier can plausibly deny making the call because it's from a payphone in his bar. But what is William Palmatier going to say? It's traced to his house. Oh, the call went to my wife? She's the one who talked to? I mean, what's he going to say? He snuck in and answered the phone when he wasn't yeah. home? What's he going to say? That is missing. I'm still hoping we get it. Yeah. Because I think there's more documents out there. We don't have them all yet. But let's, let me talk about the next document of interest. I came across a remarkable two-page letter from Harlan Warren to William Palmatier, dated... September 2nd, 1960. Okay. This is just a couple days after the Glenn Palmatier interview, right? There is nothing at this point in time that would make you think these guys should be cleared. There is nothing the police know at this point in time that would remove them as being huge suspects. It's a two-page letter. Let me read you the first paragraph. Dear Mr. Palmatier, The publicity given your name in connection with the very nebulous and remote possibility that a telephone call was made to your home 
from the telephone located in your brother's tavern in Aurora, Illinois, and its possible connection with the Starbrock murder case is very regrettable. Can you believe that? And it, the letter ends, I sincerely regret the unfortunate publicity given your good name. Very truly yours, Harlan D. Warren, state's attorney. What is going on here, Whitney? This is in the middle of an investigation where these brothers are prime suspects. And Harlan Warren writes an apology letter to this guy? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I know I've asked you this question before, but I, but I think it, it, it's worth asking again. Have you in your entire legal career ever seen an apology letter written from a state's attorney <laughs> to a person who is being investigated apologizing for asking questions? No. Have you ever seen that? No. I mean, the only time you hear that potentially is when somebody was falsely accused of something and you've now proven conclusively it wasn't them. Yeah. This is on September 2nd. There is nothing. All Glenn Palmatier has told you is even more suspicious, right? I mean, he's now told you that he knows Robert Murphy. They know that he's talking to Lupe Cardenas every day. They've traced his calls. There's no reason to not right now in September be all over these brothers, okay? So why Harlan Warren does that is something that I would love to know. Well, to me, it screams, don't take revenge on me. Don't, don't. It's, it's, it's Harlan Warren saying, just, just, I'm apologizing. Let me proceed with my career. Please don't hold me in a bad light. Like it, it, to me, it, it's, it smells of fear. Just incredible. And by the way, if you read the whole transcript of the Glenn Palmatier interview, there's other interesting stuff in there. They talk about a phone call made to a prison in Iowa and you know, who, who talked to this guy in the prison and what's going on. They've traced other calls there. There was a lot going on there. Well, let's continue. So we talked about Glenn Palmatier's statement, August 30th, the apology letter, September 2nd. I came across polygraph reports. Uh, there's a polygraph report dated October 14th, 1960. Okay. So let's put this in context again. Lois Alonso comes forward in April. May, June, July, August, September, October. These guys are given polygraph exams in October, okay? And Lois Selensek is given a polygraph exam in November. In November. All right. I've got these polygraph reports. These are part of the new document. I had never seen these before. Glenn, William, and Lois. Which person do you think failed the polygraph? Well, since we're writing a Hollywood screenplay here, it would seem going for absurdity. I'm going to say Lois is the one that failed the the, the test. Whitney, I laughed out loud. I kid you not. I laughed out loud when I read it. William and Glenn apparently passed with flying colors. Of course they did. But but little old Lois, the telephone operator, and and the report, her report's written so wishy-washy. It's like, it says in here... um, There are general indications of deception throughout her charts. However, they are not convenient enough for the examiner to be able to indicate specifically in which areas she's being untruthful. It would appear that the test results could be due either to the subject's fabrication of facts or her not being sure what she actually overheard. What a joke. What an absolute joke. First of all, it's a joke that they're even getting polygraphs. 
A polygraph is typically given, frankly, to be honest with you, by a detective to say, just to lie, to say, oh, you know, Whitney, your polygraph, you failed. You failed, Whitney, and you're in big, big trouble. That's typically why you get polygraphs. The fact that somebody passes or fails, who cares? They're not even admissible. They're not even reliable. So the fact that, to me, there's only one reason to give these polygraphs in October, November, that is to have a bogus reason to say, oh, the brothers are cleared and the telephone operator is just wrong. You wanted to have a little reason to say that. And that's why these were done. But <laughs> what, a, what an absolute farce and a joke. Seriously. To me, it, it's so insulting to Lois Salincic. She, she must have just not understood what she overheard. You know, you read the original document regarding what she overheard. She's clear as day. And there's just how much ambiguity can there be around words like there was a write up about the murder in the paper. Tell the kid to burn the clothes like I mean, we, this is not speaking in code. Yeah. And let's remember all the detail in that memo. Yeah. She's describing the accents She's describing the fact that they were talking about a car transaction. Yes. Not just the purchase of one car, a bigger deal. And lo and behold, William Palmatier owns a car dealership in Peru. Like, she is corroborated in everything she says in there. She absolutely heard what she heard. And she describes a man with a uh, an uneducated voice, probably from a big man, that sounds very suspicious like Lupe Cardenas, right? Bingo. Bingo. You read my mind. We talked about this before. And I said, it doesn't really sound like the Palmateer brothers sound like they're businessmen. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these guys held like high positions. But Lupe Cardenas, who apparently is this big burly guy. Yeah. Sounds like maybe he's the guy making that call to William Palmateer. And if he was, of course, I'm sure Glenn is aware of it. There's no way they talk all the time. It's no secret, right? Was well, it just a backtrack? You know, early on when 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 you first uncovered the Zelensic memo, you had said, you know, something doesn't feel right to me because the call is coming from Glenn's tavern, but Lois Zelensic is describing someone who is uneducated, and that's not Glenn, and that that stuck with you. So that's why it was such an amazing discovery to find out about Lupe Cardenas who is a known associate of Glenn Palmatier. The police observe him hanging out at Glenn's tavern. He's a big burly guy who's uneducated, was in and out of prison, reporting to the boss, right? Which would right. make sense in the form of William Palmatier. And so when you found the information about Lupe Cardenas, it was just like, okay, now this makes sense. So to Lois Alensic's credit, she described details that you were able to later corroborate this is not a woman who was confused or in a fugue state reporting some sort of hallucination about a conversation that took place. So to to suggest she didn't know what she was talking about is just so insulting to her. And I just hope that anyone listening to this podcast says a little uh, positive uh, you know, prayer for Lois Zelensic's spirit out there and says, thank you, Lois yeah. Zelensic, for what you did. A couple of things. When you say fugue state, it always, it always reminds me of Breaking Bad when there oh, yeah. the, the, the fugue state parts. Uh, any Breaking Bad fans out there, I hope uh, we'll get a chuckle out of that. So on this Lois Zelensic issue, when I read this report, I was so upset that they were making her out to be a liar and fabricating things. I went and took court-reported statements under oath from Lois's daughter, 
and her best friend who's still alive. And they both said that Lois was an honest, credible, genuine person who took her job very seriously. She was president of that telephone operators union. And she is not the kind of person, you can read from that memo, she was so troubled by what she heard and whether she should come forward. She's such a credible witness. For it to be claimed that the brothers passed and she failed is absolutely ridiculous. Let's get to the most over-the-top part. We're writing our screenplay now, right? We're writing our screenplay. All these things have happened. And tell me if this would be extremely over-the-top to you. Okay. You know, Chester passed six polygraph exams in the first, you know, in March and April. All those were administered by the Illinois State Police. Well, what happens here is around the time these brothers are getting looked at around August, Harlan Warren kind of takes over and gets heavily involved for some reason. And he assigns Dummett and Hess to himself full time. And these three amigos are going to be the guys trying to crack the case, right? Harlan Warren's the one who arranges not to use the Illinois State Police polygraph examiners, but his own examiners at John Reed and Associates in Chicago, okay? So the exams given to the Palmateer brothers and Lois Selensic, and by the way, to Chester Weaker in September, are done by a polygraph examiner named Stephen Kindig. All right, we're writing this screenplay. What if I said to you, Whitney, hey, I got a cool twist. Let's have the polygraph examiner be friends with Robert Murphy. What would you say to that? Okay, I would stop you right there and I would say, no, Andy, that's too over the top because that's just so blatant and obviously a conflict of interest. Oh my God. That suggests something really sinister. That's too much. <laughs> you can't do that to an audience. Oh, oh. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm sorry I'm laughing and I, and I, uh, there's nothing at all about this that's funny. I'm laughing at the absurdity of this, but this is a horrible, horrible story. But it's true. I found, I don't even know how I found this, Whitney. It's a newspaper article dated Friday, November 18th, 1960, posted on the website. And it talks about this friendship. And I'll read you a part. It was a link of friendship between Murphy and Stephen J. Kindig, Chicago lie detector operator that brought decisive action in the case. Are you kidding me? The polygraph examiner is friends with Robert Murphy? And, and All like, roads I, lead to him, oh, Andy. What ah. are the odds that we found any of this out, right? I mean, it's a, it's a miracle based on a 60-plus-year-old record where everything's been destroyed, given away, taken to different people's houses. Everybody's got parts of the file. That we've now connected the dots. Glenn Palmatier is connected to the mob. He knows Robert Murphy. Robert Murphy knows the polygraph examiner. I mean, literally, if <laughs> in our screenplay idea, you'd be like, no, no one's going to buy that. That's just that's just crazy. We can't put that in there. But that is the truth, Whitney. Isn't that just absolutely mind-boggling? It's so upsetting, and yet it's so not surprising at this stage that we've come to right? Through this whole journey. Of course they knew each other. Of course, right? It's just, it, you you start you start responding to all of, like everything you tell me, right? So the whole time I was out on maternity leave and you would call and give me updates, 
I would go, of course, of course, because it's so absurd. That is now becoming the status quo for this case, right? The status quo is that all these people knew each other. All these people totally had conflicts of interest, ethics violation. There were obvious usual suspects. And and I, I mean, the fact that Robert Murphy and Steve Kendig were friends, this was such an obvious miscarriage of justice with all of these different players doing unethical things, covering up the truth. That that now every detail that comes forward, uh, every detail that, that that's brought into the light, to me, you just go, oh, of course, of course, because it can't get more absurd. It can't get more upsetting. It can't get. It can't be a bigger miscarriage of justice. Whitney, it 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 also. Let me make this point. You know, I met the woman who reached out about her grandfather. Yeah, I met the man from Hennepin. Alone, those two stories prove the case that it was a mob hit at the request of one of the husbands and Chester Weger had absolutely nothing to do with it. Okay. And those two are incredible, incredible witnesses, but everything we've learned from these documents that we've talked about today, what I want to stress is it's all consistent with what those witnesses are saying. It's consistent with actions of the mafia. It's consistent with actions of a husband. It all fits together like our jigsaw puzzle, right? We're not finding things that are contradicting what those witnesses are saying. We're just finding things that are further corroborating it all. Yeah. Just to go back here, isn't it convenient that after Chester passes six polygraph tests, then Steve Kendig, who is a personal friend, of Robert Murphy, the husband of the woman who is the center of abuse in this in this horrible murder, that then Chester's word is no longer valid. Only then, only then, when Steve Kendig is brought in with his expertise, right? Let's just let I, I, I that's just it's too convenient. It's just frankly too obvious to me that this is a setup. So Whitney, we're writing this screenplay, and not only have I said to you. Let's have the polygraph examiner be friends with Robert Murphy. Let's, let's take it one more step, Whitney. I got another idea for our screenplay. There's going to be a large reward, you know, $30,000. I got a great idea. Let's divvy up the reward between Harlan Warren, Bill Dummett, Wayne Hess. Oh, yeah, and let's, 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 throw in, let's throw in some money for Steve Kindick, too, the polygraph examiner. Let them all share in the reward money. How convenient. How convenient. Can you believe that? I mean, Harlan Warren got $11,550, and Dummett, Hess, and Kindig all got $5,500. Whitney, they shared in the reward money. It, it's, <laughs> it's astonishing. It's corrupt. It's improper. It's so over the top. We could never write this in our screenplay because we'd be too embarrassed to put all these things in there. But this is what happened. Again, the truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. All right. So that is a lot to digest. I just dumped a lot on everybody out there listening. Oh, my God. Please, everybody, go to the website and look at the documents. Read them. Digest it. Take it all in. You have to read them several times like I did. There's so much to just let sink in. The level of corruption and cover-up is unspeakable. 
So let's talk about next steps. People have been asking. I appreciate everybody reaching out. We've had a lot of people reach out, want to know what's going on. So I dropped off officially all my evidence with the Will County State's Attorney's Office. All the things we've talked about in this podcast, including the things today, everything was dropped off, including the transcripts of the woman about her grandfather, the man from Hennepin, all these things. The Will County State's Attorney's Office has it all. It is now in their hands. And I will wait. I will wait to meet with them. Uh, I've told them that Chester Uyghur's conviction needs to be vacated. The case against Chester Uyghur has been completely dismantled. I don't have to prove who committed the crime. I have proven that Chester Uyghur didn't. But we've shown, credibly, that it was a Chicago Mafia hit at the request of one of the husbands. So we will wait. We will wait to see what Will County says. Uh, And I will keep everybody posted. In the meantime, we have a status hearing in court on October 28th, which is supposed to talk about the DNA. If you remember, we had one hair, a male profile, uh, that was found on the left index finger of Mrs. Murphy's glove. Chester Weger is not the source of that male DNA profile. We've determined that that hair is not any of the victims. We are now going to start the process of getting that hair submitted into the CODIS database. CODIS is a national database. Anybody who's gotten arrested, and I forget what year CODIS started, but it's a database, you know, of all kinds of DNA profiles of people. We're going to submit it. Maybe we will get a hit. Maybe we'll get a hit. But that is the status. I am waiting basically to hear what the Will County State's Attorney's Office has to say. I'm hoping they will meet with me. I will make my case in person, passionately like a closing argument, that justice needs to promptly be served. Chester Uyghur's conviction should be vacated today, immediately. He's 83 years old. There is no case against him. There is nothing at all. And that is where we are And we will keep, keep, keep pushing forward, fighting forward, moving forward. I will keep everybody posted. As soon as I hear anything, we'll provide some updates. I appreciate, again, all the support from people that have reached out, everybody that has showed support along the way. It has meant a lot to me. It's meant a lot to Chester Weaker. It's meant a lot to his family. Thank you. And I hope to talk to everybody, including you, Whitney, very soon.